0: The Murder Shelf Book Club contains disturbing content related to real-life crimes. Listener discretion is advised. The real story here is not that a child, my daughter, was murdered. Sadly, that happens way too often in our country. The real story is what was done to our family by a careless and incompetent police department. They have the capacity to do great harm. They can destroy lives. They can destroy futures. And with absolutely no accountability, and to me, that is the real story. John Ramsey, quoted in *Unsolved: The John Bonnet Ramsey Case*, twenty-five years later by Paula Woodward. Up a little closer, love ain't mine. Up and be. Cheek so rosy, like to make you comfy. Cozy, cause I love hate you. Welcome back, Murder Shelf bookies, to episode 38, The Ends Justify the Means, on Unsolved, The JonBenet Ramsey Case 25 Years Later by Paula Woodward, part two. I'm your host, Jill, and I have a true crime book club in the greater Philadelphia area, And I love discussing true crime where I apply my 30 years experience as a psychology educator who studied and taught about serial murder. I decided to turn my love of reading and fascination of true crime into a podcast so I can share these stories with you. Each month, I will discuss a book I pulled off my murder shelf in the first two episodes. No boring timeline here. I present the story from the author's point of view. Please make sure you have listened to episode 37, The Pen is Mightier Than the Sword, Unsolved, The A Ramsey Case 25 Years Later, Part 1, before you listen to this episode 38. In this case especially, the devil is in the details. Now, in the third episode of the series, I called Second Cast because I cast it in a different light, and I cast a wider net as well, adding analysis and updates to the case. And Second Cast, Episode 39, The Crime of the Century, of this trilogy is intense. All right, it's two weeks until CrimeCon Las Vegas, and oh my god, I am excited. The speaker list is long and varied and fascinating. John Ramsey and Paula Woodward are going to be there, our Paula Woodward, and she and I are planning to chat. So be assured, I'm going to try to figure out how to update you from CrimeCon, so stay tuned. There may be snippets of minicasts coming your way. In addition, our next book, which is Bone Dead on the Betsy Faria murder, both Joel J. Schwartz and Russ Faria will be at CrimeCon 2, so my cup runneth over. And if you've watched the NBC series on the book, The Thing Without Pam, that is a great primer for the Bone Dead trilogy. Oh, and you can also see that on Hulu, but I'll include more details about that later. Okay, so at the end of episode 37, I'd reviewed media coverage that convicted John and Patsy Ramsey in the press versus what the actual evidence was when it was known by law enforcement and the disconnect between the two. Some of these big myths were obliviated. The Ramseys were interviewed by police the day of and after John Binet's death. They also gave DNA, Hair and blood samples to Boulder PD within two days of the murder. John Ramsey's handwriting did not match the ransom note, and Patsy was basically ruled out as well. There were eight signs of break into the home, not zero, eight. There were no footprints in the snow because there was no snow on the sidewalk to leave them in. John Binet was also not molested prior to the attack, and Patsy did not dye John Binet's hair blonde. Oh my gosh, Patsy did wear the same outfit twice. Oh my God, fashion faux pas. But the record still needs to be corrected. By September 7th, 1997, the rumor mill made the TV news yet again, focusing on the ransom note. CBS News reported that the ransom note was, quote, written to mislead and written by a woman, end quote, implying with devious intentions, Patsy Ramsey wrote the note. Immediately, more than 230 newspapers and television networks published and or broadcast stories stemming back from that Vanity Fair story. Many of these stories were pre-coverage promos running between September 4th and 7th, 1997, coming up on the September 16th release of the Vanity Fair article. These promos said that Patsy was suspected of writing the ransom note, which was largely ruled out. By January 1997. Subsequent articles based on this Vanity Fair piece reached as far as Sydney, Australia. The Ramsey's attorneys were completely pissed off, demanding Boulder Chief Tom Kobe investigate the police department. Chief Kobe offered that maybe some of the detectives on the case should take polygraphs to uncover who was leaking the false information to the media. Good. This is promising, right? No, no, not a single polygraph happened. Kobe backed down and instead sent a letter to the Ramsey attorneys saying that there was no evidence that the Boulder PD participated in any unauthorized release of case information, with Boulder City Manager sending the same letter, insult to injury, that the city would quote, not investigate, end quote. So there's no evidence of leaking because they didn't investigate the leaking. Got it. Truly, this is some some masterful fuckery. These stories will continue to be recycled over and over again for months, even years. I understand that law enforcement wants to get the bad guys, but you must keep an open mind and go where the evidence takes you. You don't get emotional and accept some evidence while rejecting others because you don't like it. There are phone officers at Boulder PD. Even John Ramsey said this, and please do not think I'm anti-police. I support our law enforcement wholeheartedly. This is a tough, tough job, stressful, and our officers make great sacrifices. But I do not blindly support either. And what's going on here is terrible, no matter the good intentions, believing the ends justify the means. It does not. John Temple, the managing editor of the Rocky Mountain News at this time, Told Paul Woodward he believes that it takes time for the truth to emerge as the first sound bites are the ones vividly recalled. Quote, the investigators were dishonest and incompetent, and some media didn't have appropriate standards. In the frenzy of this chaotic investigation, the police got away with it for a long time. End quote. Some media didn't have appropriate standards. Some? Uh, That was you, John Temple. You were the editor. You let these soundbites be published without proper double-sourcing verification. Now, to his credit, he did admit this happened, and the media propelled much of this forward by doing shoddy journalism. I do hope he apologized to the Ramses. But why? Why did police officers, detectives, superior officers all conspire to manipulate the public with blatantly false information? Unfortunately, it went off the tracks in the first hours of the investigation into the kidnapping. Immediately, Boulder PD spent time at headquarters debating what to do about the kidnapping when they should have been at the crime scene. News that John Binet's body was found hit them embarrassingly hard. She should have been found in the morning and certainly not by her father. One officer who was at the headquarters meeting told Paula he was nauseous because they hadn't found her. He tells Woodward that another Boulder officer, on hearing John Bennet's body was found in her home, angrily remarked, quote, I knew it. They killed their daughter. End quote. And that's where it began. This guy wasn't at the crime scene, but quote, knew what happened. The autopsy hadn't been performed yet. The cause of death was still unknown, but he knew. The immediate groupthink where everyone adopts a singular point of view to be pursued was severe. And I believe in our law enforcement people, the vast, vast majority are decent, honorable, and law-abiding themselves. But occasionally, it can go really wrong, and it must be acknowledged. Realizing how badly they screwed up, every means was on the table for the Boulder PD investigators, and it was not in a good way. As they attempted to regain their reputations by regaining control of the investigation, by solving the case, but that included rejecting evidence and the truth that deviated from the narrative. It was the parents. I read Robert Whitson's book, Injustice, while John Benet Ramsey was murdered by a sadistic psychopath and not her parents. He was a sergeant at Boulder PD at the time of this case, and he admits his screw-ups, which I have to say I admire. Any officer who spoke out, questioned, and supported the intruder theory was removed or banned from participating in the investigation. These were Lou Schmidt, the homicide detective with a 90% record of solving homicide cases brought in by Boulder, Tripp DeMuth from the Boulder's district attorney's office, and Detective Steve Ainsworth of the Boulder Sheriff's Department. They were all silenced. Another officer who was part of the investigation explained to Paula, quote, They were on this crusade to avenge John Benet's death while destroying the family. I've never seen cops act this way, thank God. It was the ends justified the means by any reasoning. Whoever came up with it, FBI agent or the officers themselves, it doesn't matter. What matters is they made it their mission. End quote. Recall that Paul had brought in an experienced homicide detective for his insights. He reasoned that Boulder PD wanted to prove that they could handle the murder case themselves. They were going to show the larger city forces, Denver and Aurora PDs, that they could handle it. Now, this is really ego-driven, and I point the finger at Chief Tom Covey from Polder PD, who should have welcomed the more experienced homicide investigators' help, but he did not. He rejected it because it made them lose face, that sense of pride mixed in with arrogance, and in this case, incompetence. It was a perfect storm of insecure ego lack of experience, poor management, inferiority complexes, and an absence of leadership. A law enforcement proverb, the first witness is the first suspect. If a crime occurs in your home while you are there, guess what? You're a suspect. The homicide expert explained that there are two reasons to look at the family when a murder occurs. If they're responsible, you need to preserve this crime scene without question. If they are not responsible, then the investigation must move forward, eliminating them and developing new suspects, often with their cooperation. So what is the evidence in the Ramsey case? Can it be used to follow this format? A highly significant piece of evidence, and I know this sounds cold, is John Binet's body. There's also the ransom note, highly significant, and DNA, which is terribly important evidence. Important information and conclusion. The 7,000-square-foot home, or 650 square meters, of the Ramsey house lets one conclude that the killer had to have some foreknowledge of its layout, or how would he even find John Bonnet's room? All right, let me explain this point. The Ramsey house plays an important role in understanding what happened. You can find diagrams of the Ramsey house on Paul Woodward's webpage under the Evidence tab. I have this linked on my blog at www.murdershelfbookclub.com. Believe me, diagrams will help. It is a complicated house. You might even want to make a sketch, as I'll explain as succinctly as I can, to a listening audience. So envision a rectangular home running east and west with the center. The house has four floors, including the basement level. 104 windows with 100 opening to the outside. Seven main floor doors that exit the house. And that's a lot of potential access. John Bonet was found in the basement in the corner storage room, humorously nicknamed the wine cellar by the Ramses, who didn't really drink. The stairs the killer used are directly down the hall from this room. There's the first floor with two sets of stairs leading up to the second and third floors, and one set leading down into the basement. In the west wing of the house, there's a spiral staircase that runs only between the first and second floors. The second set of stairs is located at the mid-center of the home, behind the kitchen in the butler pantry, with access outside and going downstairs into the basement and to the upper floors. Once down the stairs in the basement, you walk straight ahead. You come to the furnace and then the storage room wine cellar. Moving west... The room next to the furnace is the train room, where Burke played, which opens to a large storage area. On the far west wall of the storage space is where the broken window with the metal grid, scuffed wall, with the suitcase found underneath, that comes into question as an access point for an intruder. The third set of stairs from the first floor is on the opposite side, in the east wing, next to the living room and front door. These run to the first, second, and then the third floor. On the second floor, centrally located, is a large playroom. Then there are four bedrooms. In the east wing are the bedrooms of half-sister Melinda Ramsey and her brother Burke's room, across from the east stairs. On the second floor west wing, opposite side, is John Benet's room, near the spiral staircase, which goes down to the first floor kitchen. You can take the center or eastern staircase up to the third floor, where you find John and Patsy's bedroom suite, spanning the whole rectangular space on the top third floor of the house, above John Bene's room, over the playroom, over Melinda and Burke's rooms. Their dressing room and study are above John Bene's room. Their bedroom itself is above Burke's, with Patsy and John's bed closer to Burke's room than John Bene's. Seeing this really helps but I hope you get the general idea of where everything was located. Patsy found the ransom note on the third step of the bottom spiral staircase, first floor west side. With this complicated labyrinth of rooms, it can be surmised that the killer may have had an idea of the layout. This is problematic because the Ramses opened their home to the public for Christmas tours several times. A stranger could have been in the house, seen the layout, and remembered the important parts. Like where John Binet's room is, how do I get out? Keep in mind, there is a narrow window of time in which this crime could have been committed, say like 11 p.m. to 5 a.m. at the latest. John Binet's autopsy was conducted on December 27, 1996, with seven people attending. Two Boulder officers, the DA's office, two medical assistants, and the forensic coroner, Dr. John Meyer. The cause of death is very clearly asphyxia by strangulation associated with a cranocerebral trauma. So, John Benet had been strangled and viciously struck in the head virtually simultaneously. Dr. Meyer explained that he could not determine what happened first, so they had to have happened together. So, any valid theory of the crime must reflect both of these things happening together. And we know this on December 27th, the day after John Binet was killed. This is like the next day. This cause of death rules out a large number of theories that flooded from the mainstream media outward. One of these was that Patsy murdered John Binet because she lost control when John Binet wet the bed, hitting or slamming her head into something, causing John Binet's skull to cave in. Some Boulder officers still hold to this crime theory in spite of there being no evidence that John Binet wet the bed that night. Her sheets were dry, the fiber evidence confirms they hadn't been changed, and this misses that simultaneous strangulation trauma injury that had to happen. It just doesn't work. Nor does the theory that Burke struck his sister, John JonBenet, and then the parents strangled her as a cover-up staging the scene. This also misses the simultaneous nature of the cause of her death. So Burke, the nine-year-old brother, is ruled out. The autopsy report reads: quote, "On the left lateral aspect of the lower back are two dried rust color and slightly purple abrasions." End quote. Similar bruising is found on John Binet's lower right cheek. Had a stun gun been used to control or torture John Binet, although Dr. Myers wouldn't commit to the stun gun theory, Colorado Bureau of Investigator Officer Sue Kirchen confirms this information exists in police reports. Homicide officer Blue Schmidt strongly believed that a stun gun was used to subdue John Binet after doing a ton of research. Schmidt found the red marks on her back and cheek matched those of the Air Kaiser brand. Arapahoe County Coroner Dr. Michael Doberson, the nationally recognized expert on stun guns and crime violence, agreed the marks came from a stun gun and had been used when John Binet was alive. This conclusion was unacceptable to the Boulder PD because if you believe the stun gun theory, then it makes the intruder scenario all the more likely. Would the Ramses have had to stun John Binet? Highly unlikely. Nor did the Ramses own a stun gun. Ever. Boulder PD offers no explanation for these abrasions. Now, while working on the autopsy, Dr. Meyer brought in an expert from Children's Hospital in Denver to consult on whether or not John Binet had experienced prior sexual abuse. Meyer determined that she had not, but wanted to be absolutely certain, hence the second opinion. So same date, December 27th, 1996, Dr. Andrew Sartnick agreed with Dr. Meyer's conclusion. There was no prior sexual abuse. Yet, by February 1997, incest allegations were all over the news confirming John Binet had been sexually assaulted. Now, more evidence. Something puzzling about the ransom demanded in the note found by Patsy. Exactly $118,000 was the ransom amount. An oddly specific amount, I agree. Coincidentally, John Ramsey's bonus for 1996 was $118,117.50. Okay, so that looks bad. That's insider information. It's highly improbable that that amount was selected randomly. So question, who knew the amount of John Ramsey's bonus? The Ramseys knew, but who else? We don't know. The homicide expert explains, quote, circumstantial evidence is considered real when there's a connection There is one here, and it's good circumstantial evidence, but it doesn't stand alone. It can't be your only evidence, end quote. The Ramsey's defense attorney provided Boulder PD with information about John's bonus, which was immediately leaked to the media with the implications that they, or someone in the family, wrote the ransom note. By the way, by March 1997, the Ramsey's siblings, including Burke, were cleared of all suspicion This was actually publicized. Headlines shouted out that the Ramseys didn't act right. Wait, isn't it always difficult to gauge what is right when it comes to your child being kidnapped, then found murdered in your home the day after Christmas? How do grieving parents act? You have to be a little flexible there. Did any of the investigators have experience in homicide so they could assess how grieving parents act? They did not. Yet they evaluated the behavior of the Ramseys, judging and concluding at some point the Ramses didn't act right. And this is leaked to the media. In the report handed in by Detective Linda Aunt, 13 days after John Binet was killed, not within that 24, 48 hour window as required, she wrote, quote, John Ramsey smiled and joked, end quote, with her that morning. John Ramsey flatly denies this. Detective Arndt also wrote, quote, Patsy's facial expression and looks in her eyes was that of someone who appears to be confused or dazed, end quote. But because this report came in ridiculously late, it is labeled a recall report, which is rarely accepted by district attorneys, but that's what she wrote within two weeks. Further reports about the Ramsey's demeanor and emotional response from the Boulder Police Reports labeled Emotions exists. And this is all new material having never been published before. Thank you again, Paula. Lucinda Johnson, John Ramsey's first wife, said, quote, John was devastated, and this is at the death of his first daughter, Beth, and he is again. He loved his daughter. He's a wonderful father who truly loves his daughters, end quote. I'm not sure how many ex-wives give unconditional support to an ex in trouble. Just saying. Melinda Ramsey, quote, Patsy's really been in a state of shock. During the initial ransom demand time, Patsy was hysterical. Just absolutely hysterical, end quote. John's brother, Jeff Ramsey, John, quote, was devastated. I mean, he was crying and praying. And John was devastated. He carried her upstairs from the basement and near the time of the funeral, he's still acting like he was holding her in his arms and would just fall to pieces, end quote. Jeff Ramsey says on Patsy, quote, she's hyperventilating. She's hallucinating. She's screaming. She was hysterical. John was pacing around. Their friends were trying to keep Patsy from fainting. She was vomiting a little. I thought Patsy was going to have a heart attack and die. Patsy was on the floor hysterical, end quote. A high school teacher noted at the funeral, quote, Patricia was very distraught at the funeral. Patsy cries all the time, end quote. I think the police have plenty of information about the behavior of the Ramses, and their behavior sounds kind of normal to me. Upset, grieving, frightened, depressed, shocked, panicked. No one here mentions John joking around. So I just don't believe Detective Linda Ott. I just don't believe her on that claim. Now, located diagonally across the street from the Ramses, a neighbor reported that she was awakened by what she described, quote, as a loud, incredible scream, obviously from a child that lasted three to five seconds and stopped abruptly, and the scream sounded like it had come from across the street south of the Ramsey residence. End quote. This was written in investigative reports. But why didn't the family hear this scream? Well, Detective Lou Schmidt explores this question and he conducts tests. If the scream came from the Ramsey basement, it could have been heard due to an exposed ventilation duct which opened to the outside of the home and was located close to the wine cellar where John body was found. Schmidt also found that a scream from the basement could not be heard inside the home on the second or third floors. Now, if you've paid attention to this case over the years, you likely heard the 911 call made by Patsy repeating, hurry, 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 at the end. She didn't actually hang up the phone, so there's an extra six seconds of audio before the recording ends. I saw a documentary where retired FBI profilers and some of my favorite people in this field were analyzing this part of the call, and I thought it was legit. The sound was enhanced, and supposedly you can hear the Ramseys talking to Burke, whom they say was still asleep at this point in the morning. If Burke was awake, why had the Ramseys lied about this? What were they hiding? The problem is that today, this aspect of the investigation has been dropped entirely from the 2021 case. I don't know why. And I also don't know if this sheds any light on who killed John Binet. All right, a headline in the Rocky Mountain News, September fifth, nineteen ninety-seven: Broken Brush in Ramsey Art Supply Source says sticks used in John Benet slaying. Law enforcement had concerns about the paintbrush that was used in the garrote; that it was Patsy's, so she must be guilty of killing John Binet. Again, their theory. After striking JonBenet in the head, Patsy took to the basement, used the paintbrush to fashion the garage, strangled JonBenet at least twice before Patsy sexually abused her daughter. Again, this theory does not fly with the cause of death from the autopsy reports. Truth is, while it's interesting that Patsy's paintbrush was used, it really doesn't give us insight into who used it. The paintbrush was broken into three pieces. One used to form the garrote, one left behind in the basement, but the last bit of the paintbrush pieces was never recovered. Gee, where did it go? Another accusation in the media was the family hired attorneys. But if you recall, we know it was a friend of theirs who hired the lawyers to protect John and Patsy. But it doesn't matter. The Ramseys lawyered up, and this is an indicator of guilt. Even though this is our constitutional right, John explained that he was far too broken up to even consider lawyers during these first few weeks. Now, there's more evidence found in the basement storage room where John Binet's body was found, and this included a high-tech boot print in mold. Photographs exist of this. The family's boots were all inspected. None matched the high-tech boot. So no one in the home or family was tied to this boot print. They even investigated construction workers who were involved in the renovation of the Ramsey's home. Their housekeeper, her husband, no high-tech connection was found. So who wore the boots? Where did the boots go? This sounds like an outsider left the boot print to me. Other physical evidence that indicated an intruder was in the home. A partial shoe print found on the basement toilet cover. Unidentified pubic hair was found on the blanket that partially covered John body. It did not trace to the Ramseys or any law enforcement personnel. Scuff or drag marks were found under the open basement window where the suitcase was located. There were glass and debris from outside on top of the suitcase. That tells me someone tracked this into the basement from the outside, doesn't it? The suitcase under the window that held a pillow sham, duvet, and in Dr. Seuss' book, all belonged to the Ramseys. The suitcase was not John Binet's, nor was it used regularly. Now, these could be comfort items that would have been used to subdue a kidnapped John Binet. John Binet's body was wiped off to disguise or destroy any DNA left on her body. My two cents her parents' DNA would be expected to be on her body as they all live together and she's six, so why bother to wipe it off her? Small pieces from a brown sack containing rope was found underneath John Andrew's bed and did not belong to the Ramses. Fiber from it was also found in John Binet's bed. Now, 12 important items used in the murder are missing from the Ramsey house. And this included the duct tape roll. Some had been placed across John Binet's mouth and the rest of the rope used to strangle her, plus the stun gun, if you believe the stun gun theory. Now, besides the handwriting analysis, which basically cleared the Ramses, let's look at the actual evidence from the ransom note. The ransom note was two and a half pages long, 373 words. It was written with a black Sharpie felt-tip pen, like the ones found in the Ramsey home. I have one at my desk too. The Secret Service compared the ransom note ink with the Ramsey Sharpie pen, and they matched, so the pen could be the ransom pen or one of this specific type. The pad. The tablet of paper the note came from was found in the Ramsey home. There were other pads of the same type also in the home. They were in plain view in the kitchen. They were all examined by law enforcement. The particular pad that the ransom note came from was identified by matching tear marks at the top of the ransom paper to the tear marks left at the top of the pad. Several additional pages were torn out, but were never found in the home. Where did they go? A partial greeting was found on a tablet labeled the, quote, practice note. It read, quote, Mr. and Mrs. Line, end quote, like someone was about to make the letter R, that downstroke. The final note wound up being addressed to John Ramsey. Both John and Patsy were note writers, hence the number of pads found in their house. If the killer had taken a tablet from the home, it really wouldn't have been missed. Now, following Occam's razor, the concept that the simplest explanation is likely the most correct. The kidnapper killer wrote the note in the house. Homicide experts asked some hard questions. Why wouldn't someone write it before breaking into the Ramsey house? Why would someone take a chance having a practice note before the final copy? Wouldn't you have prepared to make sure the note was perfect? Why dally instead of being prepared and exiting quickly? All good questions, and we don't know. I'm thinking he felt confident that he'd have time to do what he wanted or was reckless enough not to be that concerned. Or for some reason, if he'd prepared a note in advance, he realized it wasn't adequate or needed additional information and rejected it. What would divert me from my plan? Well, suddenly something came up, like Marcia Brady said. The content of this brutal ransom note is also weird. It's oddly detached, rambling, no real anger, but it's snarky and threatening, at least several times. If you don't act right, quote, your daughter will be beheaded, end quote. And if you do this or that, quote, she dies, end quote. There's no profanity and uncommonly used terms like attache and fat cat, which ages the perpetrator in my eyes. Fat cat is an expression that began in the 1920s, and by the 1990s, was really used exclusively in the American political context by politicians about their opposition. So it's an odd term to appear in a ransom note. Something else, John Benet's name is not used, which makes me think he didn't know it or he didn't know how to spell it, so he ignored it. Possible. Or... This was a deliberate effort to disassociate from the precious, beautiful little girl, compartmentalization. So all of these are valid theories, but we just don't know. Was the note written for a real kidnapping, or was this a cover-up? Again, until the killer gets caught, we just don't know. While not angry, the note does seem to taunt. Paula suggests it's an I'm smarter than you lesson. Some believe the note is immature. Well, that depends on whether your perpetrator is in his 20s or his 50s. One element that does seem to hold water is the phrasing of some language. It seems to come from film dialogue, and that means premeditation. The Ramsey note used, quote, we have your daughter, unquote, while the film Ransom has we have your son, quote, you and your family are under constant scrutiny as well as the authorities. Don't try to grow a brain, John, end quote. Now that may have come from the film Speed, which was released in nineteen ninety four, only two years before John Bene's death, where Dennis Hopper's character says, You know that I'm on top of you, don't attempt to grow a brain. Quote, speak to anyone about your situation, such as the police, FBI, etc., will result in your daughter being beheaded, end quote. Now from the film Nick of Time, You talk to a cop, you even look at a cop too long, and your daughter's dead. I'll kill her myself. Cut the head off right in front of you. All right. It also sounds very similar to this from the movie Ransom. Do not involve the police or the FBI. If you do, I will kill him. So the movies are an explanation for the odd suggestions and language. But this means an intruder and the Boulder police investigators believe it was the parents Rejecting the movie language theory. There's a lot of this. I just cannot offer it up to coincidence. It seems like really deliberate choices to me. The closing of the ransom note. Victory. SBTC. Geez, we can spend forever trying to figure out what that means, but until the killer tells us, we're just not going to know. But I wanted to mention it. The homicide consultant explained that this case can be solved in two ways. Right. First, someone knows something speaks on the evidence that is publicly unknown, which is being withheld by Boulder PD. The second is genetic DNA profiling that leads to a suspect whose DNA matches the evidence, DNA taken from John Binet and the crime scene. I agree that this offers the best real possibility of solving the case, genetic genealogy. We hear about cold cases old cold cases being solved with DNA quite often. Just February 10th, 2022, the Pennsylvania State Police announced a 57-year-old cold case involving the brutal sexual assault and murder of a nine-year-old girl, Maurice Ann Chivarella of Hazleton, PA, was solved using genetic genealogy. Chivarella was killed on March 18th, 1964 by James Paul Fort, who died in nineteen eighty probably of a heart attack. This was the fourth oldest case solved with genetic DNA. Great work, Pennsylvania State Police. The oldest case was a 1956 double murder of Dwayne Bogle and rape and murder of Patricia Kalitsky, both of Great Falls, Montana, who happened to be out on a date. Kenneth Gould, who died in 1908 as well, was tied to the case by his DNA. His children volunteered to give their DNA to help police do the genetic testing on one sperm cell, one, which was found to belong to Gould. But I digress anyway. I love the details. Right. Unsolved was published in June 2021. So it does not tell you this. In December 2021, the Boulder PD issued a press release on the 25th anniversary of John Binet's murder, summarizing that they have analyzed nearly One thousand DNA samples over twenty five years of investigating, twenty one thousand and sixteen tips, and interviewed over a thousand individuals. And they wrote, quote, as the department continues to use new technology to enhance the investigation, it is actively reviewing genetic DNA testing processes to see if those can be applied to this case moving forward. End quote. So are they going to use genetic DNA? Maybe. At least they're looking into it, so stay tuned. Keep your fingers crossed, motor bookies. So, what do we know about the three DNA tests that were already conducted? Well, the first was done on January 16, 1997, and taken from John Binet's fingernails and the blood in her panties. It was analyzed by the Colorado Bureau of Investigation and Cellmark Labs. This DNA excluded John, Patsy, and Burke Ramsey. And other family members and friends. John Binet's DNA was mixed with another individual referred to as unknown male number one. And that the DNA cleared the Ramses was not leaked to the media. And this is less than three weeks after John Binet's death. A copy of this report and many, many, many others is provided in Paula Woodward's book. The second DNA test was requested by the Boulder PD, and results came back by May 1997. Cellmark Labs also excluded John, Patsy, and Burke Ramsey. It showed a mix of DNA from John Binet and another person. In 2003, the Denver Police Department Lab requested the Ramsey case DNA for possible inclusion in CODIS, the national data bank operated by the FBI that stores unknown offenders' DNA from a huge number of crimes. To be accepted into CODIS, DNA must have 8 to 13 specific identifiers called alleles, and that's a high bar. The Ramsey DNA has not had any matches so far. The third wave of DNA testing was conducted in 2008 by Bade Labs in Virginia. Then District Attorney Mary Lacey Asked for the lab to test two previously untested areas of the long johns John Binet was wearing. Her theory, a sexual predator would pull John Binet's leggings and panties down to sexually assault her, and Lacey was correct. Using touch DNA, the new DNA matched the 1997 DNA results on material taken from John Binet's body. This was the killer's DNA. There is just no other reason for finding stranger DNA in these locations on a six-year-old child. Acting with unique courage, DA Mary Lacey wrote a lengthy report that caused great controversy. She told the truth. She exonerated John, Patsy, and Burt Ramsey from killing John Binet. The lengthy letter reads in part, quote, Given the circumstances of this case, to say that we do not consider your immediate family, including you, your wife, Patsy, and your son, Burke, to be under any suspicion and commission of this crime. Given the publicity around this case, it is important and appropriate to provide you with our opinion that your family is not responsible for this crime, end quote. What is a noteworthy depiction of character, Miss Lacey personally reported the DNA results to John Ramsey face-to-face, That he and his family were cleared of any wrongdoing, handing John the letter herself. John was hopeful that they could now focus on finding the killer and he was to be let down. This news of the exoneration was not well received. Many convinced by the years of misinformation and lies protested. The media went crazy. Columnist David Harsani of the Denver Post wrote on July 11th, 2008, Mary Lacey, Quote, has disregarded facts and played the media and public for a bunch of suckers along the way. Lacey, one of the most incompetent officials working in Colorado law enforcement, has taken us on this ride before. She is an elected official and Boulder voters got what they deserved. End quote. Talking about incompetence, criticizing the woman following where the evidence, including the DNA went. I think Harsani is somewhat protective of himself and his lackluster colleagues. If they read reporter Paula Woodward's book or listen to this podcast trilogy, they'll learn that they have been deliberately misled and used. In 1993, Colorado passed the Victims' Rights Act, quote, to legally ensure that crime victims are treated with fairness, respect, dignity, and that they are free from intimidation, harassment, or abuse. End quote. So Mary Lacey granted the Ramses legal victim status, quote, thus ensuring they had all the rights of victims of serious crimes, entitled to the respect and sympathy due from one human being to another, end quote. All right, I love this woman and her chutzpah. As such, the Ramses were entitled to an annual update concerning the status of this cold case, which has never happened to this day. And sadly, Mary Lacey did not run for re-election in 2009. She works in a law firm in Boulder. Expert homicide investigator Lou Schmidt resigned in September 1998, believing the Boulder investigation was completely off the tracks by focusing on the Ramsey family. He died in 2010 of cancer, but his family members have continued trying to find the killer. Schmidt left a ton of documents behind after he died, and the killer's name could be among them. To this day, the Schmidt team delves into child abusers, snuff films, pedophilia, molestation and sexual assault of children, finding these individuals and getting their DNA whenever possible, sometimes serotypically. Their findings are compared to the DNA of unknown male one in the database. An update fun fact. In 2020, Lou Schmidt's granddaughter began a podcast on the case, The Killing of John Binet, The Final Suspects. And on July 2021, Cindy Mara, Lou Schmidt's daughter, posted an update. Quote, We have added two very experienced, motivated, and talented retired detectives to our team, Kurt Pillard and Dick Ressler. Both Kurt and Dick worked at CSPD. And have many amazing stories for their time working with Lou and homicide. With their help, we've cleared two more people from our list, and we currently have three samples being tested. It's a labor of love and respect, not only for their friend Lou Schmidt, but for the pursuit of justice for John Binet. End quote. An expensive test, this DNA sampling stuff. A link to their GoFundMe page is on my blog. So after the murder, appropriately, The Boulder PD interviewed everyone remotely related to the case, family, friends, professionals hired for a variety of services, neighbors, teachers. They also interviewed people from Charlevoix, Michigan, where the Ramsey summer home is located. Detective Steve Thomas, who totally believes Patsy did it, wrote in his report that, quote, it seems the theme that's being portrayed in this family, John and Patsy, were ideal parents, Christian people. It's been difficult at best during the investigation to uncover anyone that can offer any other perspective on the Ramseys, end quote. Yup, it's a whole conspiracy of people trying to cover up the fact that John and Patsy are a bunch of axe murders, right? Or you think people are just telling the police how they perceive the Ramseys that they've known for years and years and decades. Give me a break. Yeah, it's really unfortunate to have all this positive affirmation when you're trying to convict people of murder, isn't it? A real stickler in this investigation concerns pineapple. Crime scene photos show a bowl of pineapple on the kitchen table in the Ramsey house. The bowl and spoon had Patsy and Burke's fingerprints on them. John Binet's autopsy report says that she, quote, had fragmented pieces of yellow to light green tan vegetables or fruit material, which may have represented fragments of pineapple, end quote, in her stomach. This triggered mass speculation that Patsy or Burt killed John after she took pineapple from his or her bowl. Origin of this idea? Police leaking. So here is the killer's motivation. She took my pineapple. Okay. Eleven single space pages exist in the Ramsey murder book summary index. All 11 pages are included in the book unsolved. Taken from the John Binet murder book summary index, The stomach and intestine contents was tested 10 months after her death. Why it took so long was not explained. Christmas Day, 1997, Boulder police investigators were told that her stomach included pineapples, grapes, grape skins, and cherries. A forensic coroner told Paul Woodward, quote, that's what's in fruit cocktail, end quote. So now the motivation is, she ate my fruit cocktail. Okay, there is nothing to indicate in the Ramsey Murder Book Summary Index that the Boulder PD listed the foods in the Ramsey house at the time. So one has to ask, where did John JonBenet eat fruit cocktail and when? No one knows because her parents said they hadn't given her any pineapple or fruit cocktail before bed. A mantra repeated regularly by the parents did it ilk stems from the Ramseys refusing interviews which was reinforced at the post-murder Monday news conference. This was and remains false. The Ramseys gave interviews to Boulder PD in the first days of the investigation, a fact denied by the police. Headlines rang out. Rocky Mountain News from the Police Department spokeswoman, Allison A. Holm. Quote, Police, however, have not interviewed Bonet's parents, John and Patsy Ramsey. They're still grief-stricken and are not in any condition to be interviewed. End quote. And this was repeated in the Boulder Danley camera, and it went from there. So here is a list of the interviews of the Ramseys. Number one, first interview of John and Patsy was on Thursday, December 26, 1996, by Detective Linda Arndt, Fred Patterson, Officer Rick French, and Sergeant Bob Whitson. None were recorded, but all are referred to in police reports. Second, First interview with Burke Ramsey was, again, Thursday, December 26, 1996, by Detective Fred Patterson in the home of Friends, where he'd been taken to protect him from the chaos. His parents did not know he was being interviewed. Third, second interview conducted by Detective Linda Arndt and Sergeant Larry Mason with John Ramsey. Patsy was sedated, so she couldn't be interviewed. Fourth interview. Third interview, Saturday, December 28, 1996, Detective Lyndon Arndt conducted short interviews while taking handwriting samples from John, Patsy, and Burke at their friend's home where they were staying. Fifth, first interviewed, Saturday, December 28, 1996, with Melinda and John Andrew Ramsey, also by police detectives. Police were also at the Ramsey home the day of the kidnapping from 6 a.m. until the body was found at 1 p.m. They could have interviewed them then while they were waiting for the call about the ransom. On that terrible Thursday, the police were observing the Ramses and writing reports. The next day, Friday morning, no one asked the parents for interviews. Saturday morning, police took DNA from the Ramses at the Sheriff's Department, and anyone in law enforcement could have interviewed them, but did not. The police remained constantly with the Ramses on Sunday as well. No interviews, but they observed them and wrote reports on their activities. It's possible that the attorneys hired by John and Patsy's friends were prohibiting interviews at this point. Possibly. But headlines, the Ramses refusing to speak to police. It's just not true. The Ramses were not refusing to speak to police. Once police realized that John Binet was murdered, Both parents should have been taken to the police station separately and interviewed. Their bodies examined, their clothing examined. It didn't happen. Friday, December 27, 1996, Commander John Eller demanded the Ramseys report to the Boulder police station that day, threatening he'd withhold John JonBenet's body from them until they did, delaying her funeral. Paula's homicide expert weighs in, and I'm paraphrasing here. Threatening someone that you're withholding a child's body back from them unless you do an interview is nuts. This is coercive behavior that's illegal, and you can't do that. Once the situation deteriorated and became aggressive and hostile, the police had to negotiate with the Ramseys lawyer for more formal interviews all through January, February, March into April 1997. Now remember, all this leaking is going on and the Ramseys know they're being set up. Patsy was due to be interviewed on January 18, 1997, but got sick. John agreed to go ahead. The police declined the interview. Another interview was set up for April 23rd, 1997. Only this time, Boulder PD canceled it while complaining loudly that the Ramses were refusing to be interviewed. A new date of April 30th, 1997 was set and they were interviewed. June 23rd, 24th, and 25th. After John Ramsey initiated it, there were more interviews conducted. They wanted to clarify and stop the rumor mill. These interviews were all videotaped. At the time, leaks were declaring the Ramseys were refusing to be interviewed. To be honest, if I thought the police were framing me, I am not sure how cooperative I would be and if I'd be interviewed at all. Not surprisingly, The Ramseys filed nine slander libel suits against various media organizations and individuals over 25 years. In 2016, John filed a 10th lawsuit against CBS, who named Burke as the killer of his sister. Burke Ramsey, all grown up and 34 years old now, also sued for $900 million. In 2019, they settled out of court. Two defamation lawsuits were filed against John and Patsy by people who thought they were unfairly named as suspects in the couple's book, The Death of Innocence, published in 2000. Wow. One of those cases, Wolf versus Ramsey, was dismissed in March 2003. Of note, federal judge Julie E. Carnes wrote an unusually long 93 page decision That's, that's long. That is really long. Judge Carnes writes, quote, the weight of the evidence is more consistent with the theory that an intruder murdered John Binet than it is with the theory that Mrs. Ramsey did so, end quote. Judge Carnes also spells out the errors made in the case against the Ramseys. And I'm thinking to myself at this point, geez, it's only 93 pages long. Judge Carnes rebuts Detective Stephen Thomas, who testified for the plaintiffs. Quote, in Mr. Thomas's scenario, rather than being grateful that her child was alive, Mrs. Ramsey nevertheless decided to finish the job by fashioning the garrote from one of her paintbrushes, looping the cord around the child's neck, and then choking John Binet to death. End quote. After being angered over bedwetting, which the evidence shows never occurred, Judge Carnes was promoted to the chief federal judge for the Northern District of Georgia, on January 1st, 2009. Now, this 93-page decision will serve as a blueprint for any defense attorneys that the Ramseys may have needed should they have been charged and a trial ensued. And the DA impaneled a grand jury in September 1998. un believable and it came to a conclusion in October 1999 a grand jury only determines if there is evidence of a crime, so it's only the prosecution side of the story. The grand jury can then decline or recommend charges for a criminal trial. The prosecution can move forward if they determine it is appropriate. All grand jury proceedings are secret. Who would be the stars of the grand jury process? Well, John and Patsy, of course, right? And yet neither was subpoenaed by prosecutors to testify before the grand jury even after their attorney said that they would testify if they were called. So why wouldn't the prosecution want them answering questions under oath? Paul and I have to conclude they didn't want the grand jury to hear from the Ramses. That simple. Lou Schmidt was not called to testify before the grand jury either. Now, remember, this is the man who went from believing the Ramses were guilty to examining the evidence to loudly believing they were innocent. But Schmidt still expected to testify, and was shocked that he wasn't called. So he sends a letter to the grand jury foreperson, asking to appear so he can present his fact-based opinion on an intruder killing John Binet. Then the DA goes to court to prevent Smith from testifying at all. Smith fights back, and he does testify before the grand jury, saying, quote, "He'd never been treated more terribly." End quote, by a prosecutor in his life and testified for over three hours. The effort to silence a guy the prosecution brought into this case is incredible. By the way, Schmidt's letter is also in the book, and it is a doozy. One person that did testify was Ramsey's friend, Susan Stein, who thought the questions he asked were unfair and that it was crystal clear to her that, quote, the prosecutors were out to get the Ramseys their questions were filled with alleged facts and evidence that the police should already have known wasn't accurate, end quote. Enter Governor of Colorado, Roy Romer. He has been in office for nine years when John Binet was killed, and he is watching the debacle unfolding with deep displeasure. Now, legally, he couldn't replace the Boulder PD or the DA's office, but he could make changes in the Boulder District Attorney's office. Going into a meeting of experienced district attorneys to get some friendly advice, though I think it might be a bit too late for that, DA Alex Hunter was ambushed. He was told he has two choices. Hunter could remove his office attorneys from the case or he could be fired. Hunter chose to fire his own attorneys. He agreed to accept three outside replacement attorneys to run the grand jury, basically neutering him into a figurehead. So, in October 1999, the grand jury recommends two charges against John Ramsey and Patsy Ramsey. The charges were not publicly disclosed until 14 years later, in October 2013. They were charged with being accessories to a crime and two counts of child abuse resulting in death. Now, John Ramsey requests that all grand jury transcripts be released to the public so they could have a full sense of the prosecutor's case. But a federal judge refused that. All grand jury proceedings are secret. You know, it's really unfair. They made the charges public, which are the result of a highly biased, myopic police investigation that refused to accept the opinions of the experts they hired. I don't blame John for trying to get the truth out there. Now, these three new prosecuting attorneys review the evidence and they do not think they would be successful in convicting the Ramses, rejecting the charges, and there would be no trial. DA Alex Hunter made this announcement and did not run for district attorney again in 2000. He is widely criticized for not prosecuting the Ramses. In 2006, the Ramses experienced another sharp loss. After a valiant fight, Patsy Ramsey died of ovarian cancer, a disease she had been diagnosed with in 1993. Having spoken with Paula Woodward, Paula agreed not to share Patsy's comments until after her death. And this is what Patsy told Paula, quote, I just don't know who killed her. I can't understand that kind of evil. I can't understand why. And I can't believe it's someone I know, end quote. On her cancer and dying, Patsy said, quote, I don't want to die. I don't want to leave. I will be so happy to see John Binet again. She is such a happy soul. She was a wonderful daughter and friend end quote. and I hope the reunion was joyous. Burke was eighteen when his mother died. He'd lost his big sister, Beth, little sister John Binet, now his mother. So my heart goes out to Burke, John, John Andrew, and Melinda and that concludes. Episode 38, The Ends Justify the Means, Unsolved, The John Binet Ramsey Case 25 Years Later by Paula Woodward, Part 2. In Episode 39, Second Cast, Crime of the Century, I'll bring you up to date on the Ramsey case, Reporter Regrets, the role of social media, Facebook, Twitter, and where the status of the Boulder Police Department investigation is today, plus my profile of the killer and a lot more, including comparisons with another kidnapping case that transfixed America and the world. And my new book selection is Bone Deep by Charles Bosworth Jr. and Joel L. Schwartz on the Betsy Faria murder, then the subject of that new NBC limited series, The Thing About Pam, out in March 2022, starring Renee Zellweger your sense of justice will be tested to the extreme, and you simply must read this book or listen to my next trilogy. Back in December twenty seventh, two 2011, Russell Farrier returned to his Troy, Missouri home after his game and night with friends to an unthinkable grisly scene. His wife, Betsy, lay dead, a knife still lodged in her neck. She had been stabbed 55 times. First responders concluded Betsy was dead for hours when Russ discovered her, yet incredibly, police and prosecutor ignored the evidence. In their mind, Russ was guilty. He was the husband. But prominent defense attorney Joel L. Schwartz quickly recognized the real killer. Bone Deep presents a perfect storm of malfeasance and missteps that led to an innocent man's conviction, exposing what can happen when police... Prosecutor, judge, and jury all fail in their duty to protect the innocent and let a killer get away with murder. Incredible story. Thank you for listening. Please leave a five star review and buy me a coffee. Yes, I'm on buy me a coffee. The link is on my blog, www.murdershelfbookclub.com. Both will really help me grow the podcast and make new murder bookies. Reach out to me on Instagram, Facebook, Twitter, or shoot me an email at jill at murdershelfbookclub.com. Follow me or subscribe to my show on Spotify, Stitcher, Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Podbean, wherever you happen to listen to podcasts. Let my episodes jump right into your feed. Until next time, murder bookies, happy reading. Trust your gut. Source material and snack and drink information from Unsolved, A. Ramsey case 25 years later, is found on my blog too. Written and produced by Jill, all rights reserved, music by Carl Hoshena, and lyrics by Otto Harback.